Bienvenidos and welcome to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. Tonight's program is produced by Nina Serrano, Julieta Kuznir, Vilma V, and Vanessa Bohm. We'd like to give a very special shout y un grande feliz cumpleaños a nuestra compañera Nina Serrano, who is celebrating her birthday today. We at La Raza Chronicles love her dearly, and we know our listeners do too. So Nina, we send you much love and warm wishes on your special day. May we keep celebrating many more with you here at La Raza Chronicles. Well, on to tonight's program. Tonight we bring you an interview and the music of famed Chilean singer-songwriter Nano Stern. He'll be performing in the Bay Area early next month. And our very own Nina Serrano speaks with best-selling novelist Carolina de Robertis about her most recent novel, Gods of Tango. Of course, we also bring a new summary of events across the Americas brought to you by our own Vilma V, who we also congratulate for graduating from the KPFA Apprenticeship Program this past weekend. All this and more, but first, we begin with a very special tribute to Nina Serrano on her birthday by Jack Foley. Stay tuned. For Nina Serrano, upon the occasion of her birthday in 2015. She's a niña, a girl, a dreamer, a ship, strong for the Native Americans. A Serrano, a strong chili of a very hot variety. She is full and funny, and she has lived not just long, but fully. What a beauty she was young. What a beauty she is now. How do I know her? I know her so many ways. Poet, inventor of octo, though she will deny it. Radio voice singing out her heart song. Dear friend of dear friends of mine. She has made movies, and movies have made her. What dreams she dreams. Equality. Justice, love, all those things, all from a girl, a dreamer, a ship, a very hot chili. She is La Raza, talking of the Americas. She is talking of friends, of deep love. This girl, this dreamer, this woman, this ship, this oh-so-hot chili, who has sat across from me and asked me such good questions that I not only squirmed, but laughed in delight. How did they know so much? These girls, these dreamers, these ships, these chilies. They know because they have lived. La vida is strong in their veins. They look at you and go, ha! She is La Serrana, a mountain dweller. La Nina? No, El Nino. But a woman, a dweller in my heart, a storm. Hasta la victoria. Hasta la Nina. Siempre. Earth that sustains us all. This is Vilma V with Noticias Sin Fronteras, news headlines without borders from America Latina for the week ending August 30th. Haiti, after years-long delays and sporadic violence, Haitians finally went to the polls to vote last August 9th. Voters sought to fill two-thirds of the 30-member Senate and the entire 119-member Chamber of Deputies. 
Fourteen candidates for national office were subsequently disqualified by election officials after violent disturbances were reported at some voting stations around Haiti and its capital, Port-au-Prince. This was the first election held under Haitian President Martelet, who took office back in 2011 and is barred from seeking a second term. Over 5.5 million Haitians were registered to vote. There were over 1,500 candidates from close to 130 different political parties. The second round of local elections is set to occur on October 25th. Mexico. Last month, more than 500 writers, journalists, and artists signed a letter to Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto demanding that he do more to end the violence against journalists in Mexico. The letter, which includes the signatures of notable people from over 40 different countries, was signed by Noam Chomsky, Margaret Atwood, Salman Rushdie, Ariana Huffington, Christiane Amanpour, and many others. The letter referenced the murder of photojournalist Ruben Espinosa, who was brutally murdered along with four others in Mexico City in late July. The letter states, quote, The widespread and extreme physical threats faced by reporters in Mexico have drawn the attention of many concerned with international freedom of expression and press freedom, including Penn and CPJ, who have campaigned to end censorship by the bullet. Brazil. The corruption scandal centered on the state-run oil company Petrobras continues to ensnare high-level politicians in Brazil. In the last two weeks, the Chamber of Deputies Speaker Eduardo Cuna and Senator Fernando Color were both accused of taking part in the 10-year sprawling corruption scheme where allegedly billions of dollars in bribes were paid. Prosecutors accused Cuna of accepting $5 million in bribes between 2006 and 2012, However, no details in the case against Color were made public. Color was Brazil's first freely elected president after a long military dictatorship in the early 1990s. Both men have maintained their innocence and have told the press that they have done nothing wrong. Brazil's president Dilma Rousseff has not been accused of any wrongdoing despite serving as chairwoman of the Petrobras board during the period of the alleged corruption. Tiago Aragao, a Brazilian-based political analyst, said, quote, For Dilma, this is a positive outcome, since Guna has positioned himself as one of the major threats to Dilma's political stability. Venezuela Last month, Venezuelan security forces deported over 1,000 Colombians from Venezuela. The deportations are part of a security offensive along the border region between the two countries that has escalated tensions within the last few weeks. Earlier this summer, Venezuelan President Nicolás Maduro closed a major crossing between Colombia and Venezuela and declared a state of emergency in several western cities after three army officers were shot and wounded by gunmen believed to be operating out of Colombia. The state of emergency included the deployment of over 1,500 Venezuelan troops to the border region. The troops conducted house-to-house searches for subsidized goods purchased in Venezuela and then resold in Colombia at a huge profit. Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos condemned the actions, stating that it hurts communities on both sides of the border and foments tension between the two countries. Last Monday, Colombia and Venezuela both recalled their ambassadors, sparking a diplomatic crisis between the two countries. Guatemala the political pressure and protests calling for Guatemalan President Otto Perez Molina to resign continues unabated this week, despite Molina's insistence that he will not resign and that his conscience is clear. The scandal centers around a scheme to allow businesses to evade import duties and is known in Guatemala as La Línea. Perez Molina's former vice president, Roxana Balderi, has also been implicated. She's accused of accepting over $3 million in bribes, and her top aide, Juan Carlos Monzon, is considered to be one of the masterminds of La Línea and is currently a fugitive. Prosecutors allege that Perez Molina was the de facto head of La Línea. The first round of presidential elections in Guatemala are scheduled for this coming Sunday, September 6th. Under Guatemalan law, Perez Molina is barred from running. This has been a summary of some of the latest news headlines from America Latina. I'm Vilma V for Noticias Sin Fronteras and La Raza Chronicles. If you have a news item that you would like to share or have us track, email us at larazachronicles at kpfa.org.
The following is a conversation between Nina Serrano and noted novelist Carolina de Robertis. My guest today is Carolina de Robertis. It's very exciting for me because this is her third visit to our studios because she's been putting out best-selling books one after another, and we're hoping that this is her third. It's called Gods of Tango. Bienvenidos and welcome, Carolina de Robertis. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and a joy. Well, it's really a pleasure for me. With your first book, the Invisible Mountain, I was very excited because one of the historic characters in your book, the student leader from the 1950s, Ernesto Bravo, is a real-life friend of mine. So it was very exciting to come across him in your book. And then years later, I saw him again in Havana, where he's been living for many decades. And I played him our interview where we discussed him. And he was shocked and I think he was shocked to be fictionalized, but he was also so pleased. I'm so glad that he was pleased about it. Yes, because it meant he was remembered. It's such an incredible coincidence that you brought that to my attention. In The Invisible Mountain, I really strove to weave true history with imagination and fiction. And Ernesto Bravo was someone who was unjustly brutalized by the police under Perón. And there was a big cover-up of the event. And I found this sort of footnote in history and wove that into my character's experiences and really strove to stick to the facts and do honor to the story of his survival and the resistance that came came out of that experience. So I'm so glad to hear that his reaction to learning about his presence in the novel was positive. Very positive. And of course, he has continued the path of resistance. He's now a man deep into his 80s. And he and his wife, Estela Bravo, are filmmakers. Yes, Estela Bravo has made an incredible documentary about children of the disappeared in Argentina. Yes, and he was part of it and is oh, part of wow. it. They're a team, actually. Before I knew that Ernesto Bravo was connected to the filmmaker Estela Bravo, she generously shared a copy of her documentary with me because I was researching the disappeared for my second novel, Perla. And, and reached out to her. And so we had already made that connection around the piece of Children of the Disappeared. It's, el mundo es un pañuelo, is what we say in Uruguay, which means the world is a handkerchief. Really quite small. Yes. And that was another thing that I've noticed now, having read all of your novels. Oh, thank you so much. All of your novels so far, because you're a very prolific writer. Thank you, and Nina. And you're still such a young woman. The books all begin in one place and end in another, and they're usually the same two places, Uruguay and Argentina. What a profound observation. <laughs> I don't know that I was conscious of that until now. It's true. You know, my first book was set primarily in Uruguay, the second two so far primarily in Argentina. I seem to be incapable of writing a book about Uruguay that doesn't have Argentina in it or a book about Argentina that doesn't have Uruguay in it. Because for me, these two countries, their cultures really interweave and interpenetrate each other. In fact, I really see myself as a Rio Platense writer. And the word Rio Platense means from the Rio de la Plata, meaning from the two countries, Argentina and Uruguay. You know, in some ways, culturally and historically, it's one bigger region. For me, these two countries, their boundaries really blur. And that's your ancestry. Yes, I'm of Uruguayan descent. Both of my parents are Uruguayan, but my paternal grandparents were Argentinians who were exiled under Perón. So while I primarily feel my roots in Uruguay, I also have an enormous family in Buenos Aires and roots and culture and, and sensibility across the river as well. So I suppose it reflects my experience. And the fact that my books begin in one country and in another also perhaps reflects my immigrant sensibility, that coming into full self is in some ways interwoven woven with migration. And now in this new book, Gods of Tango, immigration is the central theme because mm -hmm. the young immigrant, Leda, comes from Italy and she goes to Buenos Aires. Can you read us a little bit about that? Sure. Of course, I'd be happy to. I will begin by reading from a moment in which Leda, at the age of 17, has just arrived in Buenos Aires. She finds herself unexpectedly alone, and this is a description of the conventillo, or crowded tenement, where she comes to live. It took weeks to grow accustomed to the noise. The clatter and roar never abated, not even at night, not for an instant. 
She didn't know how to hear herself inside so much sound. Perhaps silence had existed in this city once, long ago, before the immigrants had poured in with their thousands of jostling voices and hands itching for work, routing any last traces of quiet. In the conventillos, which earned their name, she'd learned, from their cramped, spare nature, like the convents that house nuns and monks, there was always the clang of water tubs, the drag of crates across scuffed tiles, the bristling duet of a man fighting with his wife, the shout or squeal or hungry moan of children, mothers' reproaches and lullabies and threats, the stampede of boys just back from hawking newspapers on trams, the tired laughter of men having a smoke at the day's end, the gossip of women as they put laundry on the line, the chorus of a family bickering over dinner, scolding the older kids for taking too much bread. On the street, the din thickened with the constant beat of horse hoofs drawing carriages, vendors with handcarts shouting their wares, fresh bread as good as your mother's, shoes, a pan that will drive your wife wild, the cracks and whips and groans of wheels, women gossiping through windows with neighbors on their way to the market with their baskets, a respite from the strict sphere of home. You just heard Carolina de Virbortes reading from her new novel, Gods of Tango. Can you read us some more? I'd be delighted. Thank you, Nina. I'll fast forward a little bit in Leda's journey. And because she has found herself unexpectedly alone, she discovers that she cannot survive on her own as a single woman unmarried in Buenos Aires. There are not enough jobs that women are allowed to work in this kind of hazardous environment. But she doesn't want to go back home to her village in Italy. She's haunted by some things in her family past. She finds herself trying on men's clothes and subconsciously contemplating the idea of passing as a man in order to survive in this new place. And this is something that we know women have done throughout history, though the stories are vastly undertold. So I'm going to read from a moment in which Leda puts on men's clothes in secret in the middle of the night for the first time. It was shocking how comfortably his clothes fit. The shirt swelled a little over her breasts. It felt strange to have two layers of fabric between her thighs. How different it must be to walk with a sheath of trousers between your legs rather than a crowd of petticoats rustling around them. She tried it, stalking the room, hesitantly at first, then more boldly, imagining how Dante might have strode on his way to work in the mornings, full of muscle and determination, full of hope. And if he passed another man, he would not modestly bow his head and avert his eyes, but rather nod to him, chin high, shoulders squared against the world. Wasn't that how men did it? She wasn't sure. She knew how it looked from the outside, this walk of men, but not how it felt from within. She tried it, walked an imaginary street, passed an imaginary man, nodded, not slow forehead down as women did, but quick chin up. She felt preposterous, but she also felt something else, a delectable rush. She took the clothes off quickly, then stared at them, bunched on the floor. What had she done? She would never do that again. In that instant, with all her soul, she swore that she never would. She broke the vow the following night. Wow. So this is when things begin changing here. As a reader, I wondered what was going to become of that. I flashed back to Shakespeare. Ah, yes, to Shakespeare. All of the Midsummer Night's Dream, as you like it, cross-dressing that happens in, yes. in those classics. Yes. And so I was wondering, well, where is this going to take us? And I was really quite surprised where it did take us. And how was mm -hmm. it going to introduce us to the gods of the tango? Well, of course, it creates a great deal of tension for Leda to cross these gender lines and to really push the boundaries of the limited gender roles she's been assigned. A lot of opportunity opens to her when women have dressed as men and passed as men in history, whether as cross-dressers or whether as transgender people. They have sometimes had accesses to more privilege in society, which is different than the experience of male to female 
crossdressers or transgender people in history simply because of the structure of sexism. At the same time that she gets a lot more privilege and a lot more access to the underworld of the tango, to jobs that men can do, to the everyday, you know, privileges of being a man, she also is in a much more extreme state of danger because if she's discovered, of course, she could be subject to great violence. And she knows that. So please read more. I'll read from a time later on when Leda is now Dante, and she is passing as a man, and she is now able to join a group of dango musicians. At that time, in the 1910s, in the very early days when the dango was still unvarnished, the first years of the old guard of the dango as we know it now, it was still something that was played in the tenements of the poor, in seedy cafes, in brothels, and it was very much a male-dominated underworld. The only women who could enter those spaces were really prostitutes, respectable women, so-called, did not have access to those spaces. So now that she is passing as a man, she is able to join tango orchestra as a violinist. So this is a moment when she's playing tango on a tour of the Argentinian countryside and contemplating what it means for her. The tango, the music itself, it seemed to carry something of this land in it. It seemed a strange thought, absurd, that music could somehow contain the pulse or imprint of the earth where it began. It seemed like the kind of thought that got people carted to insane asylums. And yet, some nights, as she played on those torchlit summer stages, she felt the continent beneath her feet, the bedrock buried far under the wooden planks, moan in grief. Or perhaps it was pleasure. She didn't know. But the moan was there. It wrapped itself around the backbone of Joaquin's bass, those solid notes that formed a skeleton around which the melody could flex and breathe. The moan sailed along the underside of the bandonion's warm howl and echoed between the piano's restless notes. It rose and fell around them, a ghost sound in their midst, a disembodied echo, a throb of untold wounds and glimmers and urges and colors, the throb of America, the continental heartbeat unleashed. She kept this secret along with all the others. She played for herself. She played for no one. She played for America. Very beautiful. Thank you. What was your own connection to the tango that led to this book? Growing up as a Rioplatense immigrant, that is an immigrant with Uruguayan and Argentinian roots, the tango has always been in my home, in my family, in the ether of my surroundings. So I grew up in three different countries, none of which was my family's country of origin. But my mother's father had composed tangos in his spare time. And the sheet music, the published sheet music of one of his songs, Nunca Te Olvidaré, it was called, hung in the kitchen when I was growing up. It was always there. Dangle music sometimes played in my home. After my father's mother died, he, for years, sang her favorite tango around the house in his sort of off-key way. Fumando espero, it was called. Fumando espero al hombre que yo quiero Tras los cristales de alegres ventanales And that song, you know, it's such a sensuous song. It's about a woman waiting for her lover and smoking a cigarette as she waits and looking forward to him giving her smoke from his mouth. And it sort of captured for me the sense that there was something in my root culture that was maybe out of step with the Puritanism that surrounded me in the culture that we'd migrated to. So the tango has always been there. And I you know, first learned to dance tango with my cousin in Argentina. I studied it more deeply as a dance and as a music in the process of researching this book, of course. So the tango's origins included the African culture, which you allude to in the book. Yes, absolutely. It was really important to me to weave that piece in. Afro-Argentinians are absolutely far too forgotten in the history of Argentina and of Latin America. Very few people know that at the turn of the 20th century, Buenos Aires was actually one-third black, quite a significant population. And, you know, that shifted a great deal. But in the meantime, in the 1880s and the 1890s, which are the decades where it's believed the tango first began to rise up, Afro-Argentinians were a tremendous part of that. 
some of the earliest tangueros or players of tango, Casimiro and Sinforoso, they were a duet of two black men who sort of moved around the poor neighborhoods of San Telmo and La Boca playing music. The first bandoneonists, even though that's a German instrument that came with German immigrants. Like a little accordion. Yeah, it sort of sounds, it's that sound that when you hear it, you think tango, that accordion-like kind of wailing, rich sound. That's the bandoneon. It actually came from Germany. However, it was a black man who first really innovated it into the tango. The very early tangos had percussion. They had drums that fell out later when the waves of European immigrants came and and it started to shift. And then once the elite of Buenos Aires began to pay attention to the tango after it caught fire in Paris in 1913, then the piano was introduced, an expensive instrument that you have to have in the room. In the early days, in the late 1800s, you know, people drummed on whatever they had. And the polyrhythms of Afro music are absolutely under the surface of tango music even today. However, that said, I did a tremendous amount of scholarly research for this book and was deeply struck by how many tango historians, including those who write in Spanish in Argentina and are Argentinians, really want to deny or diminish the contribution of Black Argentinians to tango music. And tango music combines so much pain and joy at the same time. I think that's where the sensuality of it comes. And even... I think that's very astute. I think that's very true about the tango. When you go to dance it, that little syncopation Mm -hmm. is kind of like where you cross the threshold from one emotion to the next. Mm, Yes. I I learned the tango... on the back of a comic book. In the old days, they had Arthur Murray ads for Arthur Murray dance studios, and they would show you the steps. And the left foot had the number one and the right foot the number two. And then there'd be little arrows showing you how to move your feet to do the tango. And my boyfriend, who became my husband and I, I got married as a teenager, we would hold the comic book up and dance at the same time, moving our feet, doing the short, short, long, long. (laughs) Isn't that great? That's a great story. And then there's that moment where you go back. Mm Mm-hmm. To go forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's that border where you cross. I always associate it crossing from one feeling to the next mm, mm-hmm. when you go back to go forward. And then I came across that same move again more recently in Tai Chi, mm-hmm. where we always go back to go forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see some correlations between the, the feeling in the body yes. of tango and the feeling in the body of Tai Chi. There's sort of a delicate shift of gravity from one foot to the other that's at its best is very smooth. At um, its best. At its best. <laughs> yes. you, you strive for that. You know? you know, I studied Tai Chi as a teenager for a while, and I remember that that was sort of what you're going for. You know, right. that feeling of such a smooth shifting of weight from one foot to the other, you almost feel like you're gliding. It's almost like you're suspended just above the ground. And that feeling can happen in the dance of the tango as well. What you said about pain and joy together is so, so poignant and true about the tango. The early tangos, the 1880s, 1890s, and the very beginning of the 20th century, it was a happy dance. The percussion, it was more upbeat, and it was also very lewd and obscene. Like I said, it was part of this seedy underworld. And then with the arrival of all of these immigrants, it started to slow down and become more nostalgic and longing and yearning. Part of that is that the bandoneon is impossible to play fast because of the complexity of all the little keys, so it slowed the music down. But the other part is I really believe that it holds within it, the tango, the sadness and longing and yearning of being an immigrant, just absolutely longing for your homeland and not being able to return, that sense of being far from home that I think is true to so many immigrants, and it captures that yearning. In your book... Leda eventually does, like in all your books, move to another country. (laughs) (laughs) But she she doesn't very much or or maybe almost never has a yearning to go back to her original gender role. Mm -hmm. She never is yearning to see how it would feel to have to wear uncomfortable undergarments and bulky skirts and... Mm -hmm high-heeled shoes. Very early on in writing this book, as I was sketching this character and bringing her to life, I knew that there were many possibilities about what her relationship would be to her disguise as a man. There are many possibilities there. Is it strictly a disguise? Is it something that reflects some internal part of who she is? And without giving up too much about the trajectory of the book, without putting out spoilers, I will say that for me, this is a story 
of a person on the transgender spectrum or a person who takes a journey exploring her relationship to the transgender spectrum. And when I say spectrum, you know, we, we are in a moment in our culture and society where we've been exposed to Caitlyn Jenner and, you know, mainstream societies having more access to transgender stories and images, and that's marvelous. And we're learning, for example, to use the pronoun of the gender that people present as. And, and this is absolutely good and fantastic for people who identify as transgender. In this book, this is a person who is taking this journey before there are such labels and languages and sort of positive, respectful codes of conduct. Leda tells herself that she's just doing this to survive at first. And it's only later that her subconscious bubbles up what it means to her, this transition, and who she really is beyond the bounds of gender. And what I really wanted to do is give her room to explore the journey in a way that is absolutely beyond words because we have not always had the reflection of language for our queer truths in history. And so it's a more nuanced journey. I thought you handled her sexuality very, very well. Oh, thank you. And I could say there are actually very sexy, exciting passages. I'm glad you found them that way. Yes, this is definitely my raciest book so far. <laughs> yeah. I think her, her exploration of her sexuality and her exploration of her gender identity are kind of boundless and become a really you know, core piece of her, of her experience. Well, can you read us a little more from the book? Sure, I'd be happy to. Where in the book is this? This takes place soon after Leda, who is now Dante, has assumed her disguise as a man and has settled into a new home. Sometimes, deep in the night, she unbound her aching breasts and sat alone in front of a cracked mirror, staring at herself in the light of a single candle, amazed at what she saw. A not-woman, not-man, a fallen woman-risen man. She couldn't tell what was stranger, that a man existed inside her or that the world accepted his existence. She wondered why no one saw through her disguise. Perhaps people could see only what they expected, what fit inside their vision, as if human vision came in pre-cut shapes more narrow than the world itself, and this allowed her to hide in plain sight hidden but not silent. Now she practiced out loud in her little room. Nobody seemed to mind or even notice in the din of Larete's days. A wild freedom to let her hands sing tangos, to refine her sound, which grew a little clearer and brighter each day as she practiced in that cramped rectangle where sunlight shone only through the slit beneath the door that humble, stinking space that she could love because it was her own, and where music possessed her, her first lover, her only lover, perhaps forever. Since even if by some miracle she managed to keep living on this knife's edge undiscovered, surviving, besting death at its own game, she could obviously never have a lover. She didn't mind the sacrifice. It seemed enough for a life to give yourself to music the way nuns give themselves to God, to vow, to surrender. Only music, after all, made life bearable. Only with music did she feel, what was it, free, happy? No, it was something else, awake. Music, arrow to pierce all barriers. Music, the great equalizer. Music, invader of centuries. Nectar of demons. Whiskey flask of God. So later in the book, she does find a lover. Yes. A series of lovers. Yes. Contrary to her initial thought, she does come to realize that she actually can approach women. At first, she's terrified to do so. And really, she's terrified of even letting in the knowledge that the people that she wants to approach sexually, erotically, in fact, are women. But she begins to approach that idea and then crosses the line into that adventure. And what would you like to read us in closing? In closing, I would actually love to read from another point of view. 
Although the book is mostly from the point of view of this protagonist, Leda, who takes this journey, in each chapter I spend a little bit of time in the perspective of another person because I wanted to create a broader mosaic of the people of working-class Argentina from whom the tango arose. And so I'm going to read just a little bit from the point of view of Santiago, who is an Afro-Argentinian musician and the leader of Dante's band. This was the commitment that fueled him still, kept him striving even when the odds seemed insurmountable. He never married, and now, at 39 years old, he still couldn't think of marriage for fear a wife might split his heart away from music, blunt his hunger. Sometimes, when he was tired and the other members of his band had gone back home, he wondered why he was doing all of this and whether he should give up the fight, maybe find a wife and settle down into a life of nights by the hearth with a full belly and feet up, children who could climb all over him and accost him with shouts of delight. And in those moments of doubt, he called up his uncle's voice, saying, The tango is ours. Remember that. Remember where it came from. For every person who knows the roots of tango, there will be 100 people who do not, and maybe one day those who do know will all disappear. But the secret lives on. It beats in the drum, and in these syncopations, even when the drum is gone, in the steps of dancers who'll never know they're mimicking the steps of an old religion that arrived here in the festering bellies of slave ships like the only bright thing left in hell a god and goddess dancing side by side the way they used to do before the tango made them face each other and embrace. Then those white people wonder why the dance makes them feel so alive. Don't worry about that. Don't ever try to tell them. Just give them the music and let music take care of the rest. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carolina de Robertis. And how can people get this wonderful book Gods of Tango. Well, happily, it's in independent bookstores throughout the cities in which people are listening to this station. And it's also available, you know, online and by request in bookstores as well. It's in the world. Well, I recommend it. I myself stayed up all night. Oh, my goodness. Sorry for keeping you up. (laughs) It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. I read mine on Kindle, and I enjoyed every word of it. Oh, I'm so glad. And you like the e-readers? Oh, that's my preference. Oh, good. Interesting. Because I read in bed. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so it's not heavy. Yes, that makes sense. Reading is reading, and now we just have more media through which to get to enjoy words. So I'm recommending this wonderful book, Gods of Tango by Carolina de Robertis, to all the listeners. Please enjoy it. Thank you, and thank you, Carolina. Nina Serrano, it's been such a joy. Thank you for having me. Un placer. Igualmente. You just heard Nina Serrano discussing the new book, The Gods of Tango by Carolina de Robertis. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. We have on the line with us a very special guest, singer, songwriter, powerful musician from America Latina who really is loved far beyond his country. I'm talking about Nano Stern. He is from Chile, but is loved all over America Latina. And we are lucky that he's going to come to the Bay Area. He really embodies so many of the things that we love here on our program, which is incredible guitarra y voz, incredible guitar, incredible lyrics that really provide a lot of context and Also, he brings to the table a lot of compromiso social, a lot of social justice orientation of really telling these bigger stories and using his music to shed light on issues that aren't always talked about. So, Nano, thank you so much for being here on the line with us. Well, thank you. What a a big introduction you give me. What an honor. Oh, no, no. All these nice things you say about me. We're Cronicas de la Raza, and we focus on what Latin America is all about, which is the intersection of indigenous traditions and cultures, la comunidad indígena, Afro traditions that, that we have in all of our countries, the Spanish influence, and how being Latino is that constant shifting and melding and mixing. And that is really something that comes through so strongly in your music, and especially in the beautiful new record that you've 
put out 1500 vueltas it's really incredible mm -hmm. especially the new track that you're featuring Festival de Color so why don't we just jump right in and we're gonna play that track for folks and then I really want to get your take on context behind that song Llegaste desde otra tierra, dejando atrás una vida, partiendo sin despedida y escapando de una guerra. Cruzaste la cordillera, atravesaste el desierto, o tal vez llegaste al puerto sin saber lo que esperaba. Lo cierto es que atrás quedaba el pasado con sus muertos. Está tu historia sepultada por el tiempo que no le entrega ni al viento un pedazo de memoria. Nunca buscaste la gloria ni imaginaste el futuro, pero en aquel viaje duro que te trajo a este lugar, la vida empezó a brotar como la yedra en el muro. Celebro la diferencia y el festejo de color y te doy la bienvenida con just heard Festejo de Color, which was put out by Nano Stern. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners also recognized one of our favorite singers that was on that track as well. That was, of course, Susana Baca, who was very loved here in the Bay Area, along with the rest of the world. So Nano Stern, so why don't you just tell us about that song? It started out as a poem, really, as an intuition that I had that I needed to write about my own roots. You know, my grandparents in particular, they also came South America recently, I mean, two generations ago, escaping the Second World War from Europe and arriving in this completely unknown place, you know, in this completely alien context of Latin America, having no clue really as refugees. And I think I'm so privileged, you know, to have been born here, my, both my parents, to be born in Chile, to be born into this society, into this reality, into this corner of the world, considering that it could have been anywhere, really. So I said, I must write something. And as I do many times, I decided to do it in decimas, which is uh, one of the most uh, kind of ancient and traditional styles of poetry, of, of popular poetry in South America, which comes from Spain in the Middle Ages and traveled, and you can find it from north of Mexico to the very tip of Patagonia. It, I'm, I'm sure about what I'm saying because I've been to both places and I've listened to Decima. So I said it should be sung in this particular style of poetry. And as I started writing, I had the intuition that it was not only my story that I was writing about, that it was the story of all of us somehow, you know, we are all coming from somewhere else, wherever you live in the world, but especially in South America, I mean, it becomes a lot more explicit. Everyone is coming in from somewhere, even the indigenous people that moved here at some point in history from somewhere else. And uh, it got to be very kind of uh, specific about things that, that happen today in Chile, but pretty much everywhere. I mean, the U.S. is quite a, a issue now, you know, the whole story with immigrants and the whole reaction of society and, and how some people are so idiots, you know, they're so stupid to think that immigrants should be stopped and that we should try somehow to maintain some kind of purity in culture, which is the most absurd idea. Not only absurd, I also think it's very dangerous. You know, my family has been in the first line of, of suffering the consequences of such idiotic thought. And I see now that the world is in the risk of falling again into those lines. You know, you can see it in the U.S. with such incredible stupid things being said in the politics, you know. But same happens here. People protest against people coming from Colombia or from Venezuela or from Haiti or even from Peru and Argentina, which are our country neighbors, you know, our, our brothers and sisters. So I said, okay, we must sing. We must sing this. And we must sing it in a positive attitude. I, I often try very explicitly in my music, even though if I'm speaking of issues which are very difficult to speak about and that I react personally with rage many times, I try to put it in music without this anger and to be positive about it. So I said, we should celebrate, you know, the fact that we're all here together, that our cultures intertwined, you know, that there is a new fabric coming out of these many, many different, uh, como se dice, hilos, these uh, lanas, these uh, this 
it's not something abstract, you know, it's something that you guys in San Francisco, for example, it's, it's incredible. I mean, whenever I, I go there, I feel so happy. I feel so incredibly stimulated by this mix of cultures that really creates something wonderful and something new and something that is at the same time being born, but it's also being born out of such old and uh, amazing traditions, you know. So once I, I had this text, it was a long time till I wrote the music. And then it was only after my trip to Peru in the beginning of this year, I made a beautiful tour there. And I had the, the honor of participating in the Guinness record, as ridiculous as it sounds. <laughs> I was part of the Guinness record of the most cajon peruano ever played together in the in the central square of Lima. It was almost two and a half thousand people playing cajon. And we were all playing a specific rhythm from Peruvian music, which is festejo. And uh, even though this song is not a festejo literally, I mean, not the, in the tradition of that rhythm, it's very inspired by the Afro-Peruvian music, also by the Afro-Colombian music, also by Chacarera, and of course by my own Chilean music. But also you can hear there a little violin and some accordions that squeeze through that speak about my personal origins. You know, my grandfather was coming from Hungary with very strong musical tradition also from there. So it all comes together. And once that the, the, the song was there and I had rehearsed with my band and we had put it together, I said, this would be so fantastic if we could, just dreaming out loud, you know, if we could do it with one magnificent voice from Argentina, someone from Colombia and someone from Peru, because these are the three communities that are most present in immigration in Chile. And it would be so powerful to be able to speak to those communities directly in Chile with their own voices. So this is how I started this kind of crazy dream of hunting down Susana and Pedro Aznar and Marta Gomez, all of whom I played with before and all of whom we have friendships, but it's still people who are extremely busy and extremely successful and involved with their own careers. And I had this vision, you know, and I'm very, very lucky and very thankful and also aware that it was a big effort and we managed, you know, to get all of these beautiful, amazing people singing together in this one song, which calls really for collaboration, for celebration of difference. And I mean, it makes all the sense in the world. It's not just like my little trip that I wanted to have all these people, you know, it's really the song is calling for such a weaving, interweaving of different people. That's the voice of Nano Stern. We're talking about the song Festejo de Color off of his new record, Mil Quinientos Vueltas. People have, you know, love your, your work and they've loved it for a long time. And I think part of it's because it feels new and nostalgic at the mm. same time, because um, as you are really quick to acknowledge, Chile and all of Latin America, really, if we look at Argentina, you know, we look at um, Mexico, we look at Peru, we can think of all these people who have really risked their lives and dedicate themselves to telling stories through their songs that have united a whole pueblo and why don't you talk to us about some of the people whose shoulders you stand on? I consider myself incredibly lucky, you know, to be able to be in, in a position where I can still play and I can still meet uh, most of those people that have inspired me from my youth. You know, just last night I was uh, rehearsing here for the big release of, the, of this album here in Santiago, which is just days away, with Roberto Marquez, who's the main composer and the lead singer and the frontman of Iyapu, who is one of like the main, main bands of the history of Chile. The same applies for bands like Intigimani and like Los Jaivas. And in the case of Intigimani, these are the people who were playing with Violeta Parra, with Victor Jara directly, you know, like the absolute godfathers of Chilean art and Chilean music, and not only music, but activism and this whole extremely important social element that music has become in South America and in Chile in particular. So I've been able to drink, you know, from the fountain directly, but also realize that for these people who are now in their 70s and some approaching their 80s even, it's really exciting and very beautiful and very humbling for them also to see young people that are respectful of what they have contributed. You know, many times you find that uh, this energy of rock and roll, you know, young people are very naive about thinking that they're inventing the world, you know, and I've for some reason, I've been, since I'm very young, I've been aware of this. Like, there's these old dudes here who used to be young at some point and who did something incredible. I've been privileged to the point of being able to tour with these people, to record in their records, to have them record in mine, and even to write together, you know, which is, I think, for creators, it's the maximum expression of collaboration is to be able to create something from scratch together. Very beautiful said about this last record on, on the press here in Chile. The big newspaper made the review and they say, it's a complete acknowledgement of the tradition, but it's not following anyone else's canon or rule book, you know. It's something completely new at the same time. And this for me is like, it couldn't be more flattering, you know. As an artist becomes more successful, it's very easy also to 
to get stuck. I have this image like success. It's a little bit like a mud, you know. It's very, very hard to walk through it because it feels really warm and really nice. But the moment you, you stop taking the next step, then you get stuck and it's very hard to move on. That is Nano Stern. So people are going to get a chance to hear you play some of these songs live here in the Bay Area, which is a very lucky treat. Normally people have to travel far to see <laughs> you. You are touring constantly, but unfortunately here in the United States, we don't get to see you as often. Luckily, I'm able to go this time. I'm very excited. Also, I'm, I'm particularly excited to go to the Bay Area because Joanne Baez, who was yes, uh, beautiful yes. and, uh, and generous enough to come and sing along with me. I actually went there, you know, for... It was a complete mad mission. I went from Santiago, Chile to San Francisco, back to Santiago, Chile, all within 24 hours just to go and record with her. But it was one of the peak moments of my music trip so far. I mean, being able to to have her, one of those souls, you know, one of those people. As I've been lucky to be able to play with Intigimani or to, to meet legends of the music in South America, I think having been able to cross my path with John Bison take her as a friend in life, you know, it's a real gift and it's an enormous inspiration for me. So why don't we play the track that you share with Joan Baez? The track is called Las Venas and it's specifically for our collaboration and thinking of something that unfortunately unites our peoples, you know, the people of California and the people of Central Chile, which is the issue with water. You know, it's actually worldwide, of course, but specifically in these two areas, I think it's something very critical. We're running out of water and it's now, you know, we need to realize now, not tomorrow, not the future consequences, it's something that is going on now. And there cannot be enough songs, I think, written. There cannot be enough people speaking and writing and creating about it because it's something that we all must become aware. So maybe this song helps just a little bit. So we will now hear Las Venas by Nano yeah. Stern with Joan Baez. <laughs> Las venas de nuestra tierra se están muriendo de a poco Lo digo y no me equivoco, pues es verdad, verdadera Bajando la cordillera por entre rayos y truenos Avanza el caudal sereno, pero de pronto se mancha Interrumpida su marcha por causa de mil venenos Por causa de mil venenos se están pudriendo los ríos y en miles de caseríos se están secando los sueños Algunos se creen dueños en su ignorancia absoluta Y así desvían su ruta siguiendo sendas de muerte con esa negra suerte la tierra misma se enluta You just heard Las Venas, that was Nano Stern and Joan Baez, really beautiful song. God, we're actually going to be able to see you perhaps play this song. You know, one of the many songs you may play at your two shows. You're going to be playing at the Mission Cultural Center in San Francisco on October 3rd and also in Berkeley at La Peña on October 4th. So those are both <laughs> shows that are coming up and people should probably move quickly to get their tickets since um, I bet people will be coming from around the Bay Area to check out your show. So 
another track that really our listeners are going to love because uh, our listeners are huge Jorge Drexler fans. They're her huge Nano Stern fans. And if they aren't already, they will be. So this song, um, Ser Pequeño, why don't you tell us about some of the things that led to its creation? Well, it was one of those lucky breaks. You know, I just sat down by the Pacific Ocean in Chile, which is, uh, even though it's the same one that bathes your shores in California, it's rough here, you know, it's cold and it's very dramatic. And then I just had this this kind of Carl Sagan moment when I thought, wow, this is all so small, you know, we're so tiny, we're so irrelevant, and it feels so good. <laughs> it's, a, it's a kind of a contradictory feeling that came through this song. And uh, for some reason, you know, it uh, developed into a candombe, which is the traditional Afro rhythm from from Uruguay, and eventually I said it would be so cool that Jorge sings along in this song, and we're good friends. We've been playing together for, for years now in different shows in Chile and other places. And he came to me and I said, hey, Jorge, would you be so cool to record on my album? And I said, of course. And that was that, and I could not believe how lucky I am to be, to be singing along with he, who is such a good friend, but also such a source of inspiration, not only for me, but I think for a whole generation of, of uh, Latin American songwriters and songwriters in general in the world. de las cosas y vivo en un puntito azul voy a la deriva that was the track Ser Pequeño off of Nanostern's latest. We're really excited that he'll be here in the Bay. He's coming to San Francisco at the Mission Cultural Center on October 3rd. And he's going to be in Berkeley at La Peña on October 4th. This is going to be a great opportunity to actually get to see him and experience the energy and commitment that he has to music. Um, Nanostern, how do people connect to your work? I think the easiest way is just to get to my website, which is uh, nanostern.cl, as in Chile, CL. Then you can access all of my networks. I have all of the different uh, social things, the Twitter accounts and Facebook. And you can download my, my music in iTunes and Spotify and all of these things that I do not like so much, but they're there. <laughs> and they make the music available for everyone in the world. And otherwise, you can just drop a line, you know, through any of these, these social media networks because I'm actually constantly in contact with people. And I love it that people write, especially from overseas, you know, it's very cool. And it's an opportunity to connect in a deep level. And whenever I have the time and the opportunity, I answer. And I've actually, I've met some very good friends like this. So don't be shy, people. If you have some thoughts to share, just go for it. Thank you. That is Nano Stern. And we look forward to seeing you here October 3rd and 4th here in the Bay Area. Muchísimas gracias por hablar con nosotros. Muchas gracias a ustedes. Un placer. You've been listening to Crónicas de la Raza, La Raza Chronicles, on KPFA 94.1 FM, community-powered radio. If you'd like to hear this program again or share it with others, check us out on soundcloud.com. Just search for La Raza Chronicles. Don't forget to also like us on Facebook to receive regular updates on news, art, culture from El Mundo Latino. See you next Tuesday at 7 p.m. Buenas noches.